presenting this month's special series, Focus on Men's Health. From cancer to heart disease to fertility, we're bringing you conversations on the latest in health issues that affect men. Prostate cancer. If a man lives long enough, it's a sure thing. So how are we treating it, and what's down the road? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, your host, and with us in studio today is Dr. Brian Moran, the director, and the medical director, actually, of the Chicago Prostate Cancer Center. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me. All right, first of all, I have a disclaimer. I was treated a few weeks ago at your center, so having said that, and that this is not a quid pro quo or advertising for you, I think it's just a great story, could you take the first minute or two and tell us about yourself and your training. Well, Mike, I am 47 years old. I'm a board-certified radiation oncologist uh, specializing in prostate cancer. I trained at Loyola University Medical Center for medical school and for postgraduate training. And then from there, I've been involved with numerous brachytherapy training programs. Okay. So tell us now your personal story because there's a magazine that you have hanging around the center that tells all about you. There's a reason you dedicated your life to treating cancer in men. Let's talk about that. Well, it's an interesting story. When I was 17 years old, I developed testicular cancer. I had an aggressive form at the time, and that would have been in 1978. I had a teratocarcinoma with choriocarcinoma and embrinal cell elements, which are quite aggressive with a high metastatic potential. And at that time, the cure rate was, was really nothing to brag about. Platinum was just coming on board with Larry Einhorn at Indiana University. And today, as we all know, Lance Armstrong's story. It's been a miraculous therapy that saved hundreds of thousands of lives. Uh, as you know, testicular cancer is the most common cancer in men between the ages of 15 and 35. And, uh, I was fortunate enough at that time to be enrolled in one of Larry Einhorn's pilot studies with platinum, and I received platinum adriamycin, Velban, and an adriamycin. That was in 1978, and I've been in remission ever since that time. So I then went on to medical school and always found myself, I'm very technically oriented, and I always found myself gravitating throughout my medical school rotations to the oncology patient. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time in, the in and out of the hospital for about two years during my illness, whether it was one of, I had three operations and then the six months of chemotherapy. I want to start by saying that the center you created is so warm and human. Did you have that kind of experience when you were 17? No, I didn't, and, and that's an interesting question. I, I vividly remember being a young man I was at MD Anderson, a great institution. But at the time, I really think oncology was coming into its own as a specialty. I mean, you're talking about the mid to late 70s. And I think the whole concept of wellness it was just arriving on the scene as far as treating the whole patient and not just the disease. In fact, I always would tell my residents, you know, that you'd hear the comment, well, I'm going down to see the breast in room three or the prostate in room four. And I, I would always correct them and say, does that breast or prostate have a name? So I was very much the patient advocate because of the experience I went through. And it was always in my heart that if I ever got out of that mess I was in, that I would devote my life to cancer patients. And my goal throughout my training was to always you know, my, my long-term vision was to develop a center that was focused in an environment where the entire staff was committed to one idea for therapy and specifically, you know, one malignancy. And 
I ended up working on prostate cancer and really have never regretted it. Was there anything that got you focused into that? Or it just showed up? You know, I trained at, at the one of the big VA institutions as well. And at that time in the 1980s, prostate cancer had a di- very different face to it than it does today. And it, this was the pre-PSA era. So that the majority of cases that were diagnosed were probably metastatic patients at that time. And these were patients that would present to the emergency room with back pain. And by that time, obviously, they'd had metastatic disease in their spine. Today, it's, it's very unusual to diagnose prostate cancer based on a metastatic presentation or even an abnormal digital rectal examination. Yeah, it makes you feel glad to be living in the days that we're living. Right. All right. So you do brachytherapy. I do brachytherapy as a term that means short therapy where you're actually taking a radioactive material and placing it essentially right into the heart of the, the affected organ or gland. Now, I got to tell you. I know we have a physician audience, and I know this might sound simplistic to you, but I'm a physician too. And when I first came across brachytherapy, I didn't have a clue what it was about being older. So why don't you explain for some of our listeners who may be as stupid as I was, tell us really what it is. Well, brachytherapy is a form of radiation therapy. It's the use of a radioactive isotope that really is not new. In fact, if you go back to the discovery of radium right around the turn of the century, the ability or the properties of radium were soon recognized by the early physicians that they were cancericidal, that they would kill tumor cells. And some of this work was done with skin cancer and breast cancers at the time, literally in the 1900s. And they also killed the curious. Can you hold on for one second? Hold on, we'll continue. If you just joined us, I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and I'm speaking with Dr. Brian Moran about his work with brachytherapy for prostate cancer. Okay, so we have seeds and the radioactive iodine? or We have three types of radioactive isotopes. One is radioactive iodine, the other one is radioactive cesium, and the third one is radioactive palladium. And they vary based on their half-lives. The half-life is the amount of time that half of the radiation is given off. Okay, how do you choose which one for which patient? You know, that's a, that's a subject of great debate among the experts. The studies to date do not show any difference in cure rates. There have been published data as it relates to the side effects. Some of the patients seem to do better with one isotope versus the other isotopes. When did you first hear about seeds? And when did you decide that you wanted to do it? And was it very popular here at that time? Early in my training, as I entered the field of radiation oncology, as I mentioned, I'm very technically oriented. And I found myself going to the operating room with the gynae surgeons treating cervical cancer, Doing a lot of brachytherapy, whether it was breast cancer or head and neck cancer was a common site that we would use. And at that time, we would actually place catheters into the tumor beds after they had been resected in the head and neck region. And then we would do what was called afterloading, which we would take the patient to the room and place the radioactive isotopes. At that time, iridium for head and neck cancer and cesium for gynecologic tumors. And the role of brachytherapy in prostate cancer is rather interesting. It was originally done in 1916 at Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital, where they actually would take a piece of radium and just insert it into a urinary catheter. And by today's standards, that would be barbaric. But it did, it was done. 
It was abandoned not too long after it was initiated. Was it abandoned, excuse me, because you destroyed more other tissue around the prostate? Well, I think at that time they were probably dealing with very advanced cancers and the the utility of it was not a positive thing. And then in the 1970s, Dr. Willett Whitmore, again at Memorial Sloan Kettering, conceived of the idea of placing small radioactive isotopes permanently in the prostate. So now they have left the realm of temporary placement of radioactive materials into a permanent type of seed. And this was done for about 15 years. The results were disappointing. The cure rates were very poor and the complication rates were very high. So the urologic community abandoned it. And then in 1983, Dr. Holm in Denmark developed the transrectal ultrasound. And this was really a monumental development because it allowed accurate visualization of the prostate gland from the rectum. And then from that point on, Dr. Holm postulated using a template placed along the perineum and visualizing the prostate from the rectum, you could accurately place these radioactive seeds homogeneously throughout the prostate. You you had excellent deposition because you could see what you were doing and you weren't into an open abdomen with high blood loss blindly placing seeds. And that was 1983. In 1985, Dr. Ragda and Dr. Blasco out in Seattle really popularized this procedure and, and to their credit, further developed it. And in the process, learned a great deal of, a great deal about toxicity, curates, and ever since 1987, we've probably been on a 20-year track record of just continually improving the process. And as you know, I mean, if you think over the past 20 years, technology is amazing. We didn't even have the internet 20 years ago. We didn't have digital technology. And we have used all of these things to enhance the delivery system of the radioactive seeds. So in our field, outcomes, good outcomes, are based on high cancer cure rates with low morbidity. And the morbidity, naturally, we worry about is the bladder, which is adjacent to the prostate anteriorly, and the rectum posteriorly. And over the past few years, we've, we've just learned an enormous amount of material on how to, how to maximize the dose of radiation to the prostate and minimize the radiation to the normal structures. Sometimes we take things for granted. I'm 58, going to be 59. When I was back in medical school 30 years ago, there were no knee replacements. There were no artificial knees. They were like a dream still. And now you look at it, it's done every day. And I, I remember going through the era of Cardiac bypass, which was a big deal, and now it's on every community hospital. Technology just zooms. All right, when you decided, when you heard about these seeds, you decided that this was going to be something that you wanted to really pursue. Well, it was something that made an enormous amount of sense for me at the time. At that time, I was doing primarily head and neck brachytherapy, gynecologic brachytherapy, breast brachytherapy, and actually skin brachytherapy. For locally advanced skin lesions, we would use plaque therapy. For instance, around the ear, a cancer that was deep within the ear in a, in a fold, plaque therapy developed by the French in the 20s was, was an excellent way to treat these cancers. And I went to a meeting, an international brachytherapy meeting in St. Louis of all places. And at that time, I heard Dr. Blasco present his very early data. This would have been around 1986. And listening to him... And seeing how he was doing this procedure, it just, it made too much sense. To me, it was a perfect procedure technically to do. The patients did well. The early results were very encouraging. 
And so I got on board, and I started to learn with him. Did you get resistance from the surgeons? Oh, my gosh. You would have thought I had three heads. When I came back from St. Louis, I wrote a small paper to all of my urology colleagues, and their common response to me was, you know, Brian, we did this in the 1970s. It was awful. I don't think we ever cured a patient. We had nothing but complications. And I would emphasize to him, I said, but this is different. This is much different. You know, we're using ultrasound. We can actually see what we're doing. The patients, you know, are up and walking within an hour. And there's solid Medicare data to show that in 1990, less than 4% of American urologists were familiar with this procedure. And I am, you know, mentioned familiar. They weren't even doing it. And today, probably 95% of the urologic communities around the country practice brachytherapy. Brian, thanks for being our guest today and telling us about the Chicago Prostate Cancer Treatment Center and your own personal story, especially. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable. ReachMDXM is here for you, the health professionals who care for your patients. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library, and we thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Men's Health. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com.